chair. I get to speak more slowly. That first session, we had a ton of data that I was throwing at you. And of course, we didn't get all the way through, um, but close, so uh, close enough. So gave you a little bit of information about how we got the Bible. Need to talk about whether we can trust the Bible or not. Uh, and again, we've got these starting points that we need to think of. And uh, just a reminder that the attacks on the authority of the Bible have primarily been on the human component. Uh, now, I, I, we, we could just have supper right now. Uh, how, how do we know we can trust the Bible? Well, the simple answer is because the Bible has been proven trustworthy. I mean, uh, it's, uh, it's been at the core of some of the most important moments in human history. Uh, whatever you want to make of the process of composition and the process of collection, which we'll talk about later today, um, the product has made a huge difference. And I mean, that, that to me is, is enough. <laughs> uh, now, for some people, maybe not. Uh, but um, for millennia, people transformed by the message of the Bible have aided the oppressed, comforted the suffering, sheltered the stranger and the homeless, improved living conditions, and inhabited a kingdom both beyond and against world powers. And that's pretty impressive. Most of you will know the name Albert Schweitzer. And most of you will know him as a medical doctor in the early 1900s. He was a medical doctor who started uh, hospitals in the deepest parts of Africa. I, there we go. I just... My mic went out for a second. I thought, oh, no. He was a German, and uh, what you need to know is he was an extremely talented German. Uh, he was a world-class organist. He had studied music extensively. Before he became a doctor, he was a theologian. He wrote, at the age of 19, one of the most important theological books of the 20th century. There were a lot of people in the 19th century who had written books called Lives of Jesus, where basically they argued that Jesus was either French or German, or <laughs> right, uh, creating Jesus in our own image, still a problem today. Uh, and Albert Schweitzer said, well, if we look at the evidence, he's not German. It probably pained him to say that. Uh, and Jesus isn't French, and he's not British. He's definitely Jewish. Right? And people are going, whoa, what a novel idea. But really, really phenomenal book. Now, Schweitzer did not believe that Jesus was God. Schweitzer believed that Jesus was a guy who sort of had some intuition of the divine. And from uh, Schweitzer's perspective, Jesus is killed. Since I've got so much time, I can uh, go off on tangents like this. <laughs> but uh, Schweitzer believed Jesus was dead. He didn't believe in a resurrected Jesus. He believed in a Jesus that was picked up by the wheel of time, and the German word is zerquetscht, okay? which is uh, onomatopoetic. Some of you will know what that means. It's a word that sounds like what it's trying to describe, zerquetscht, <laughs> splashed, splatted, right? The wheel of history picks him up and then rolls right over him and squishes him flat. However, Schweitzer was so impressed by that Jesus which I think all of us would agree was a really poor view of Jesus. But that really poor view of Jesus convinced him he needed to go back to school, become a medical doctor, and start medical missions in Africa. So that even with a very poor view of Jesus, 
you can be transformed. And there's something, right? There is something about the power of God's word. There's something about the power of the message of the Bible that has impacted people throughout history, even people that didn't have a very good understanding of what was really going on in the story. Uh, and and uh, I think it's, it's important to be reminded of that because a lot of the uh, attacks are not going to remind us of those things, right? They want us to forget those types of things. Uh, so the simple question is, can we trust our Bibles? Yes, we can. It's, it's proven itself trustworthy. But uh, we, need, we need to deal with more things than that. And so, uh, again, the reminder, current challenges are based on the human product either ignoring or rejecting divine power. Uh, if, even if there are human errors in the canon of the Bible, God works with human error to save humans. Right. Now, I'll try and explain some of what's going on with this. So in the first session, we looked at, so how did the individual book sort of develop in this very long process of development? But one of the other questions is, is how did we get this collection of books? Uh, on, on whose say-so, right? The human element. Who said we should only have these books? And we have to admit that somewhere in here, we do have a human element in the process of collecting the books. Now, I firmly believe there's a divine element in the collection of the books as well. And uh, again, we're going to present the data, and the data are open to different interpretations, but I'm going to share with you what I consider to be the most probable. The Old Testament and the New Testament developed differently, primarily because the Old Testament developed over a long period of time and the New Testament developed over a short period of time. So a thousand or more years versus a hundred years. And so you have these collections, Torah, prophets, and the Psalms and writings. And by the way, I, I think I have in the booklet uh, references to this in Luke chapter 24. Uh, this is the Jewish view of the Old Testament. Okay? Protestants have four categories. We tend to throw in historical books. But it's really important that you know that the Jews believe that the historical books were prophetic. That First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel are part of the prophets. So when they talk about things being fulfilled in the law and the prophets, it's more than just the major and minor prophets that we think about. I also want to point out there's no evidence of a council's decision that people got together and said, these are the books that we're going to follow. Now, you may have heard of a council at Yamnea or Yavnia, or it gets pronounced a number of different ways. There was a group of Pharisees that met at a little village in Israel after the first Jewish revolt and tried to figure out how do we save Judaism after the, Jew, after the Romans have destroyed the temple. And there was a Jewish scholar in the 16th century who figured that, well, this council must have decided scripture because all the Christians believe that there were councils that decided their scriptures. So no evidence that there was a Jewish council to determine the shape of scripture uh, other than a, 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 the idea of a Christian counterpart. Now, what I'm going to show you is that there is no Christian counterpart to that. So the, the makeup of the Old Testament was not based on some council. At least we don't have any evidence of that. You need to know that not all Jews and Christians agreed on the same books, but they agreed on most of them, for the most part. Uh, the Sadducees and the Samaritans seem to focus only on the first five books of the Old Testament, right? Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Um, but uh, the rest of the Jewish groups generally had an idea of uh, what books belonged. Now, they might have varying forms of the books. Okay? Uh, at some point in the future, your English Bibles will likely have two versions of Jeremiah. Uh, because there were two versions of Jeremiah in the first century. Okay? 
And uh, sometimes our New Testament writers are quoting one and sometimes they're quoting the other. And it might be nice to know what both versions of Jeremiah are. And what's interesting is first century, Christian, first century Jews and Christians believed that Jeremiah was inspired. Well, there's two different versions. Which one's the right version? Doesn't matter. Jeremiah is inspired. So, and one version is 30% shorter than the other. Now, if you've read Jeremiah, you know that he actually wrote three different copies himself, three different versions. As, and so do we have two of the three versions that he wrote? Don't know, but, it, but it's interesting that there, there's some of these things that are developing that might uh, change our Bibles. But well, one of the things we're gonna be talking about is that sort of the view of inspiration that's very common today in American Christianity would not have been understood at all in first century Christianity. And not all Jews share the same canon. Not all Christians share the same canon. Right? We know this from our own Bibles because Jude quotes a book called First Enoch, which we don't have in our Bibles. And I'll tell you right now, we shouldn't. Right? But Jude thought it was Scripture. But just because Jude thought it was Scripture, I don't think that means we should think it is Scripture. In fact, I know we shouldn't think of it as Scripture. If you've ever seen the movie uh, Noah, and it came out, and, and Christians are going, man, that's one weird movie. There's nothing right out of it. It's, it's straight out of the first, first Enoch. They picked a different version of the Noah story. Uh, so, um, but when Jude quotes first Enoch as scripture, the part he quotes supports a message that's found in the rest of scripture. Right? It's not some strange thing like giants and some, you, know, you get some really strange things out of the book called, that we call First Enoch. Um, Jude may be referring to a book called The Ascension of Moses uh, as well. Um, Hebrews refers to some of the books of the Maccabees. Uh, Paul quotes in two places things as scripture that we don't know where they're from. They're not, not in any of our Bibles or any of the excellent texts that we have. Uh, but by and large, right, everybody agreed on sort of the same types of things. Right? And the good news is, right, God works with humans, including human error, to save humans. And I, I love Jude. It's actually one of my favorite books. Um, and not just because it's something you can read in five minutes. <laughs> which is why it's my student's favorite book. Um, this should actually say, how did we get the New Testament? Not sure how I missed that one. Um, so the Old Testament grows over time. Prophets, I mean, the Torah is the earliest section of the book of the Old Testament. Then you have um, the prophets, which is the next section, the last books to be added to the Bible are the writings, also sometimes abbreviated as Psalms. By the way, Christians have three versions of Psalms. Right? I'm guessing most of you have 150 in your Bibles. If you are Greek Orthodox, you have 151. If you are Syriac Orthodox, you have 153. Because... Everybody believes Psalms was inspired, but in the first century, the book of Psalms was still growing. Right? And so depending on which manuscripts you got, determined how many Psalms you had in your book. Right? Uh, so, so some interesting things in, in terms of, of the development. Now, one of the things I really want to do, this might actually be a great Freudian slip in terms of how did we get the Old Testament instead of how did we get the New Testament. Because the concept of the New Testament doesn't exist until the late second century. And in our Bibles, we don't even get our New Testament separated from our Old Testaments until the 1400s when a publisher decided, you know what, if we could stick another page in here, we can put some more ads, okay? 
So the, the first time that we get a distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament in a Bible is because a publisher wants to put in some more ads. Okay? What you need to realize is when early Christians refer to Scripture, they are referring to what we call the Old Testament. When Paul is writing to Timothy and says, all Scripture is God-breathed, he's talking about the Old Testament. And the challenge was, on what basis, I, I just got this Gospel of Mark, do I just sort of consider it as sort of uplifting religious material? Or does it belong with Genesis? That's a huge question. That is a huge question. And they conclude it belongs with Genesis. That these books that we call the New Testament were always, you never hear them called New Testament in the Bible. They're always called Scripture, right? The writings, the Bible, the, the book. And what people were wrestling with is, no, we've got a new collection. It is, these belong with our collection. It's not a new collection. It is, these belong to the Scriptures. And that, that is a significant decision. Um, and that decision is made before the second century. That, that's a very early decision that people are making. So, um, basically we're dealing with concurrent development. Some of these things are developing at the same time. Now, the Gospels appear first in our Bibles, but they were among the last books of the New Testament to be written. It's important to remember that. Because uh, we, we have a tendency to think that since they're at the front, they were the earliest. Okay, but the, they're generally the last. Prax Apostolos is the combination of the book of Acts with the Catholic epistles. Okay, and they would circulate in one volume in the early church. And then you'd have Paul's letters. Okay, and then Revelation is a separate volume as well. Okay, um, but Revelation wasn't really accepted for quite some time. Um, and also, and this is important, later churches did not create a Bible. Later church councils. That is what you will often hear because that has been repeated for hundreds of years. So that's sort of the, the traditional interpretation of the history of the Bible. The problem is that the evidence that we've been able to accumulate over the last hundred years has completely blown that out of the water. That is not true at all. And I'll... I'll I'll show you some stuff, may not make any sense to you, okay? Which is fine, that's the way I trick you. <laughs> so what are the church councils doing? Because we know that the church councils wrestled with the idea of scripture and canon. So by the time we get to the late 4th century, especially the early 5th century, so 500 years after Christ is when we're finally sort of saying, we really need to nail this down in one final version. The church councils are not creating a Bible. They are reacting to two attacks on the Bible okay, that occurred in the 2nd century. Okay. And the attacks on the Bible were either trying to add material or take away material. Some people wanted more books, like the Gospel of Thomas, or 3 Corinthians. Okay, 3 Corinthians is a great story. By the way, 3 Corinthians was in the German Bible until Luther's translation. So it was part of German Christianity up until the early 1500s. But uh, 3 Corinthians was actually written by a bishop in the 2nd century, around the year 140, uh, and he was deposed. Now, and his defense was, well, I wanted people to hear what Paul would say to our community if he were alive. Right? Well, that makes sense. Right? Uh, one, of, one of those sort of novelty Bibles, the Cotton Patch Version. Uh, Cotton Patch Version was uh, a version done by a white Baptist preacher who was astounded at the southern churches in 
the U.S. during the 40s through the 60s that they could read the Bible and not hear the criticism against racism. So he said, I'm going to write the cotton patch version. Okay. And the letter to the Ephesians is now the letter to Birmingham. Pretty powerful. Okay. Um, so perhaps there's room for that kind of thing, but not treating it like scripture. And that's where, where he got in trouble is because people started throwing third Corinthians in their manuscripts. And the, the church is going, no, 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 we're not going to do that. Then you had people trying to take away because Paul only talks about one gospel. We've got four. So let's get rid of some of them. Okay. And a guy named Marcion says, we want to go just with the gospel of Luke. You have some others who are going, we only want to go with the gospel of John. And you know, imagine a church that only has the gospel of John. Right? It's a very different picture of Jesus. He doesn't preach in parables. Um, He's about 50 years old, according to John chapter 8. Uh, so so he, he's very different, right? And there's value in having more than one gospel. Uh, but one of the things that's clear is what the church is reacting against are these attacks, not what do we create. Right? People are playing with our stuff, and we need to set the parameters. So the parameters, had, they already knew basically what was their scriptures. Um, and the councils are just ratifying what had already been decided earlier. Well, how much earlier? And I'm going to tell you, a lot earlier. So, I've got the word codex up there. All that means is book form. Okay, our books. There's a reason when you come to church, you're not bringing scrolls. Okay? Now, what you need to realize is the book had been invented relatively recently. Um, the book was a Roman invention around the first century. But people really didn't adopt it. Um, it was mostly used for student notebooks. Uh, and uh, you know, Harlequin novels, something, something like that. Okay, um, not not widely used. If you had good quality literature, it went in a scroll. Everything important went in a scroll. But one of the things that we see happening in Christianity is a very early adoption of the codex of the book. Across the board, you have to remember in the first century, we don't have a centralized church power. And yet, all the evidence we have is of a Christianity that has adopted the book form. When the rest of the world is using scrolls. Now, we don't know why. There are some uh, speculations but the origins don't matter. Okay? The fact that they quickly adopted this and it's widespread is. And what's interesting is what you'll find is the biblical books in book form and the religious books in scroll form. Okay? So the church is making a distinction between what goes in a book and other Christian literature that goes in a scroll. They're, they're making distinctions. Now, we know that the original writers wrote on scrolls. That's why we have Luke as volume one and Acts as volume two. If Luke were using a codex, he could have written it all together. So Luke wrote his two volumes on scrolls. But not long after he wrote on scrolls, somebody said, we're sticking that thing in a book. And then everybody else that was Christian did so. And then we have an interesting scribal practice. It only occurs in Christian manuscripts. And again, we have no centralized authority in the first century church. 
But wherever sacred names appear, we end up with abbreviations. What I have circled here, this is the beginning of Mark. So the first line says the beginning of the gospel of. And then the second line, the first two words there, there's four letters, two words. There's a line over each pair of two words. Jesus Christ, son of, and then the next circle is over two letters with a line over it, God. Christians invented a specific type of practice of referring to sacred names that is not found in any other book culture in the first century world. And again, without a central authority, this is, this is in all Christian books that we have evidence for. It's a brand new practice, and it's adopted all across the board. Here's another. This is one of my favorite ones. Now, you probably can't see this. Now, these, these are called staurograms. The word for cross that you crucify somebody on is called a stauros. Now, you may have heard that the word crucifixion was viewed as vulgar and not used in polite speech in the ancient world. That may be true for a lot of people, but it wasn't true for Christians. These are actually our earliest images of Jesus. What they have done is they've taken three letters, what would be equivalent to S, T, and R, and drawn a picture of Jesus on the cross with them. And it is, STR is the abbreviation for stauro, stauros. So wherever crucifixion, crucifix occurs, Christians are putting pictures of Jesus on the cross. They are not ashamed to speak or to demonstrate their belief in the power of the cross. No centralized control of the church. And this becomes standard practice in all copying of, of Christian scripture. Book titles in, order, in, in book order. Book titles are important. It's important for people to know what, what they're looking at. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but the titles we have in our Bibles are really dumb, at least for the New Testament. Now, I say that. Most of your New Testaments probably have had some things added to it. Let me, let's just say the earliest titles were not the wisest, okay? at least from our perspective. The Gospels, the earliest title for a Gospel is according to so-and-so. This one is according to Mark. What according to Mark? Right? The history of the world? Okay. Top 10 dancers in Jerusalem? <laughs> you know, where's the best bar in Caesarea? <laughs> What's he according to what? Right? And the fact is, the church recognizes it's the one gospel, according to Mark. The one gospel, according to Matthew. There's so much of this already preconceived ideas about what the four Gospels are doing, that as they create titles for the books, because they didn't come with titles, as they create titles for the books, you have this standard practice that assumes that the users already know a lot about what the Gospel is. The titles of Paul's letters are just simply to the this one is to the Romans. Okay. Uh, again, <laughs> you would like to know it's a letter to the Romans. Right? Uh, it could be any number of things again. Right? Uh, but there's this, this standardized practice. Uh, Paul's letters are organized by length. Well, that's a strange way to organize letters. Right? But all of Paul's letters, it doesn't matter where you are, that's how they're ordered. And Galatians and Ephesians are pretty close in length, so sometimes Ephesians comes before Galatians, sometimes Galatians comes before Ephesians. Uh, but 
It depends on who's doing the counting, but they're going to keep them in order, okay, based on length. Um, and then the Catholic epistles, or we call them the general epistles, because uh, we're afraid of the word Catholic. Okay. Catholic just means universal. Uh, of. This is of Peter, number one. First Peter. Again, what? <laughs> what of Peter? Uh, these aren't really catchy titles, uh, but they are the titles of the books. And they clearly indicate a very early understanding of collections of material that are represented, again, without any central organization to make these types of decisions. We have in Christianity a very clear and unique book culture by the early second century. That's before any councils. Uh, and whenever somebody's copying what we call New Testament stuff, this stuff is there. Every single one. Um, so, if we think about the order, we've got four Gospels. The Prax Apostolos, which is Acts, and then the Catholic Epistles, would either be a collection of the Catholic, four Catholic Epistles, or it's the collection of Acts and seven Catholic Epistles. So you had uh, churches who had different collections of uh, the Catholic Epistles. Um, when we get to the Pauline letters, there's evidence of development of a, an early seven-letter collection. But it's interesting how that seven number becomes so important. Because once you start adding some of these others, then it's letters to seven churches. Uh, and then when some people decide that Paul wrote Hebrews, he didn't. Uh, but when they decide that Paul decided that Paul wrote Hebrews, then it's 14 letters, right? Two groups of seven. So we have this idea of four and seven that's controlling how things are put together, which is, which is sort of interesting. And just imagine, right, Revelation, four beasts, which are associated with the four Gospels, and seven letters, which are associated with letters of Paul. Uh, the influence of seven letters is so strong that we get a guy... Uh, in the early 2nd century, around the year 114, who uh, uh, is arrested in Syria and he's being transported to Rome to be killed uh, because of persecution. And for some reason, he feels it necessary to write seven letters. Um, so you, you, you already have working by the beginning of the second century, this concept of four and seven, and these are the books, and this is the way you copy them, and we're gonna do it different than everybody else. That says they are viewing these texts, and this is gonna be true of the Old Testament as well, they are viewing these texts differently from other texts. They are not treating the Bible the same way that they would treat Homer's Iliad, or Virgil's Aeneas, or the plays of Euripides, or other Christian literature that's uplifting in nature, like the Shepherd of Hermas. It's, it's already part of the DNA of the church, that these are, these are our books and they are different from all other books. Right? Long before church councils. And then, um, Matthew and Luke use Mark as one of their sources. Now, that says something about the authority of the Gospel of Mark in the eyes of Matthew and Luke. So here we have authors in the first century, and when they're looking for authoritative material on Jesus, they go to Mark. Uh, and then we've got Peter, who uses 19 
of uh, Jude's 25 verses. And then that's in 2 Peter, and he also, uh, in chapter 3, talks about Paul's letters as being Scripture. Okay. Um, you know, we, we clearly have evidence, even within the New Testament, of part of the New Testament being viewed as authoritative and valuable. That is early. Okay. Now, unfortunately, I can't tell you how that happened. This happens in a gap of church history that we, we just don't have enough data to explain how this happened, but that it did happen is absolutely clear. And what happens later on with the church councils and discussions of scripture are really just in responses to people playing with the stuff that already existed and saying, no, we're gonna stick with what we've had. So, uh, the reason I raise this is because the history of the canon often is a part of the arguments that are uh, supposedly attacking the Bible. We can't trust the Bible because uh, the Bible wasn't decided until the 4th or 5th century. We can't trust the Bible because, you know, all sorts of people were writing all sorts of things and we'll it was all floating around and it was viewed all equally valid until later on. And what's missing? You get a lot of books now about the missing books of the Bible. Okay. Um, they're not missing. Uh, if they were missing, you couldn't even publish the book, right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> How missing can they be if you can publish them? But, uh, um, all right, but again, uh, going into the conspiracy theory that somehow people have been trying to keep you from the truth. Um, the, the email that said the Catholic Church kept people from the scriptures for hundreds of years, and I mentioned just really briefly that's not true. But I've seen, all right, I've gone to Europe, and I see these big old Bibles, and they're chained to the pulpit so that the people can't study them. Oh, yes, you can. Just go up to the pulpit. When things were printed, and even before, handwritten stuff. So if you wanted to buy the Gospel of Luke in the first century, it would cost you six months' wages. Okay? So one of the things you need to think about is that a lot of people never had the entire Bible. A lot of Christians and Jews never could afford the entire Bible. Even synagogues and churches couldn't always afford the entire Bible. I work a lot with Ethiopian Christians, and uh, it's amazing how many Ethiopian churches uh, don't have any biblical books at all. They just have uh, a lectionary religious ritual materials and things like that. Um, there was a tendency when the church was able to buy one of these big old brand new Bibles. There's a tendency for people to steal them. Apparently not familiar with the Big Ten, but um, <laughs> so they chained the Bibles to the pulpit so people could have access to them. Because if it gets stolen, nobody has access. Right? But sometimes we get these conspiracies. Um, uh, you're going to get me preaching and then I'll have to start talking fast again. By the way, what time am I supposed to sh shut up? Well, I'm not going to stop now, but I just want to make sure. I, uh, 5.30, okay. So, autonomous, okay, self-governing churches, right? There's no centralized body of leadership for the early Christian church. Autonomous churches okay, are universally first adopters. Okay, a first adopter is a new technology comes out and you, you, you get on to that new technology before anybody else does. Right? You're the first person to buy the latest iPhone. Okay? The book has just been invented in Rome and Christians are gone. You mean we could get all four Gospels in one volume instead of four scrolls? Let's do it! 
You mean we can get all of Paul's letters in one volume instead of multiple scrolls? Let's do it, right? And what, let's, let's start something new about how we refer to Jesus and God in our manuscripts. Oh, let's draw little stick figures of Jesus in the Bible, whatever he's crucified. I mean, that type of, of thing is going on. It's clearly, there's an early edition of one or more parts of the New Testament, right? The Gospels, the, the Prax Apostolos, Acts in, in Paul's letters, and Acts in the Catholic letters, and then Paul's letters. That, those collections are solid. They may fluctuate a little bit, especially the Catholic epistles, but uh, those are solid by the beginning of the second century. The end result is the process of canonization, okay? This is the canon, a collection of authoritative books. The process of determining an authoritative collection of books, which is adding what we call the New Testament to the Old Testament and viewing it as scripture, the totality, happened a lot earlier than most people are going to tell you. The people who want to challenge the Bible are going to say this was a very long human process. Well, humans were involved in the process all along, but it didn't take long. Now, people along the way started challenging this, and the church reacted. But the reaction was to say, no, what our forefathers had is what we must have. It's a very different view of the history of the Bible and the New Testament. Um, so that you can still say, well, humans were involved and humans make mistakes. Granted. Okay? But again, I think God was also involved. And God works with human mistakes. When Martin Luther translated the New Testament into German, he thought there were some books that shouldn't be included. James was one of them. He numbered the books of the New Testament that he thought belonged in the New Testament, and he left numbers off of the, the books that he thought didn't belong. Um, but he was unwilling to remove them. Uh, he let his personal views be known, but he still refused to remove them from Scripture. Uh, you would only know about it by reading commentaries and looking at the table of contents. Um, all right. I think Luther was wrong on the idea of, let's get rid of James. Okay. Uh, but look what God did through Luther. He did some amazing stuff. Um, God's able to work with sinful humans to save humans. And in our discussions about the Bible and the history of the Bible, we are not doing ourselves, and especially God, a service if we leave him out of the discussion. Um, he's at the core. He's at the core. So one of the things that scholars talk about is the canon within the canon. I'm standing up, but I'm hoping to still talk slowly. Um, the fact is that sometimes, even though we have the entire Bible, we tend not to read the entire Bible. Uh, we have our favorite books. When I was growing up, it was Acts and Hebrews. Those were the two books that really mattered. Maybe Paul's letters occasionally, if we wanted to move out a little bit into murky territory. Um, I have my great-grandfather's first English Bible, and it is absolutely clear that the only book he read was Psalms. Because it's the only part that's worn. Everything else is pristine. Um, sometimes we consciously do a canon within a canon. Sometimes we unconsciously do it. Uh, most of my students, if we talk about a canon within a canon, they have three favorite verses and that's it. That's all of Scripture they need to know. Um, and that becomes a problem. If we believe that the Bible is the revelation of God, right, the Bible, then we have a responsibility to, to know the whole Bible and to follow the whole Bible. 
Uh, and one of the attacks on the authority of the Bible is pointing out that Christians really just don't live it out, do they? How, how important a book can it be if Christians are not even willing to read it? Um, but it's, it's interesting. Canon within a canon. Why, why do we sometimes limit our exposure to God's Word? Sometimes it's due to economics. That's what I was talking about before. Uh, books were so expensive that um, really it was synagogues and churches that tried to collect as many books of the Bible as they could, but there was no guarantee they could get all of them. You know, we, we read in Acts 17 about the Bereans being more noble because they searched the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. And we have in our mind that they went home and pulled out their Bible and they opened it up and looked at it. They didn't do that. Right? Only 20% of the world is literate in the Mediterranean in the first century. Uh, so even if they had a Bible at home, they couldn't read it. But they couldn't afford a Bible at home. They went to the synagogue and got the one guy who could read it and said, okay, here's where Paul said, find it for us. I mean, the entire community is invested in finding out what Paul has to say. It's a very different dynamic, right? I'm staying in a hotel down the street. I can open up the door. There's my Bible. And it's not even chained. I could take it. <laughs> Sometimes we have a canon in, within a canon because of worship practices. Um, Many Christian churches follow what is called a lectionary, which tends to run you through a lot of Scripture, but it doesn't take you through all of it. And lectionaries tend to omit the more challenging passages in Scripture. Um, I was mentioning that the Ethiopian Christians often, in their churches and monasteries, don't have complete Bibles, but they just have the religious rituals. Um, the three books of the Bible that Ethiopian Christians will hear each year is Psalms, Song of Songs, and Revelation. That'll do some weird stuff with your theology. <laughs> I know who's booking a trip to Ethiopia tomorrow. Sometimes we have a canon within a canon because of sectarian interests. Some books of the Bible don't speak to what we think is true. Uh, I don't know that growing up in the church, our congregation ever studied the book of Psalms because it doesn't have any commands, examples, or necessary inferences. It's just wasted space biggest book in the Bible, and we think God just put it in there as filler. Sometimes, most of the time today, especially with my students, canon within a canon is just due to laziness. I don't want to read the whole thing. I don't want to know the whole thing. Give me your three best verses, and I'll live by that. Uh, if we're going to have healthy discussions about the value of the Bible, perhaps we should reflect it in our lives. But having said all that, having said all that, I was focusing on the human component and not God's power. Even when we have a canon within a canon, God is at work in his people, through the Spirit, with whatever portion of the Bible they can hear, that they can have access to. Because God is at work in his word. The term we have for that is called inspiration, which is what we're going to talk about after dinner. But um, let's have a discussion Hopefully your phone has been on fire with questions texted to you. I may not get to all the questions. I think one just came in. No. Okay, good. All right. So, um, so you're suggesting Mark should start a sermon series on the Song of Songs? Absolutely. 
There you go, Mark. Oh, by the way, since we're he talking about... He is not even listening. Yeah. <laughs> he, 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 he's asleep. It's, that's what preachers do. Um, when other people are teaching class, that's what I do. Um, Thanks a lot. We did miss a you know slide what? in the last presentation, and Songs one five, Song of Songs 1-5 was one of the things that I put up there as a modern error. Up until 1991, our English versions of Song of Songs 1-5 said, I am black but beautiful, which suggests that being black is not beautiful. But that is not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says, I am black and beautiful. But when you get a bunch of old white guys translating, <laughs> all right, 1991, it's when we get the first English version to change the wording to what the Hebrew actually said. So one of my points in that slide was that sometimes our biases alter Scripture. And that can be because of a translator, or it can be just the way we live out the text. But the text should be altering us, especially our biases. Oh, you were going to say something. Yeah, thanks. Okay, so... I. Um, I'm not taking questions from the floor, <laughs> especially when it's my father-in-law. Even in our modern age, somebody put up about the Old Testament when it was written. Yeah. Well, the King James Version still has a printed error in it, and the first NIV was missing a verse out of the Gospel of John. I mean, so we, yeah, even with the printing press where we expect errors to be gone, we still can have errors. They do happen. They do happen. So one question that came in, and I, I thought this, I, I figured you knew how to answer this. I mean, I, I know you know how to answer these questions, um, but I knew how, what your answer would be. But I just wanted you to kind of share this with everybody just to expand on a point from the first session. The NIV 95 has salutations to brothers, but the NIV 2011 says brothers and sisters. Yes. So the question was, which is more accurate? Uh, the more accurate is brothers and sisters. Here, here's why. All right. Now, the, the best translation would be siblings. But nobody wants to hear the word siblings said in a microphone. <laughs> right? Microphones have improved quite a bit, but you stick the S's and the B's together, and it starts exploding and screaming at you and all sorts of things. So what they decided, because translators now have to think about how does this sound when it's read out loud? Okay. So siblings is the best translation. Brothers and sisters is a good second choice, but it's a great choice for scripture being read out loud. Uh, plus, the New International Version is international. The scope of the New International Version is for people who have learned English as a second language. Okay? And siblings is not a, a word at the top of the list of things that foreigners learn in English. So, brothers and sisters is a great translation. Now, what you have to understand is why it's a great translation. Greek is a language that comes from a very patriarchal time period, where everything was based on the presence of men. If you have 9,000 women and one guy, you have to address them as men in Greek. Right? We've got a play about four brothers and three sisters in ancient Greek, and it's called brothers, siblings. Right? So again, what determines meaning? Starts with C. Context. It is really strange when you read Philippians and you find out that the issue is about two women named Yodia and Syntyche, and Paul only talks to brothers? Uh, we got some cisterns, <laughs> right? The brethren and the cisterns, okay, that are part of the community. And especially as English language changes, because English language does change. It used to be that we could use the term man and refer to humans in general. But most readers today, if they pick up a text and read man, they're thinking about a male. So you do you want half the population 
searching for Christ to pick up a Bible and find out it's only for men? That's a horrible way to go about evangelism. The Greek word, in a context of a community, must be translated, brothers and sisters. Okay. That is the best translation. Okay. Well, excellent. And I, um, uh, like I said, I think um, one question came out of the first session as well. Another question that came out of the first session, you made a comment about uh, Bibles translated by one person. One person asked, what about the message? It's not a Bible. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I thought that's what you said. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the message uh, translated by Eugene Peterson, who's actually from the Stone Campbell movement. He's a member of the disciples before he passed away a little while ago. Um, wonderful man, very devoted to scripture. Uh, he's got a, a book called Eat This Book, which is about just sort of ingesting God's word. So um, a very devout person and a pretty good scholar. Uh, but um, what he was trying to do is not present a translation, but a paraphrase. And you always lose some meaning in translation, but you always lose a lot of meaning in a paraphrase. You also gain a lot of meaning. But um, I, he, he made some renderings that I think are just absolutely ingenious. And then he just made some renderings that were just absolutely horrible. And if there had been a committee... I, th I think that would have sort of reined him in on some places where he's going way out there. Um, so I would say the message is a useful tool, but I would not use it as uh, a study Bible, okay, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's, it's one person's opinion about what's going on. So do you want to explain just briefly how would be the best way to study the Bible, doing the study Bible or whatever? Learn Greek Thanks. and Hebrew. No. Something <laughs> simple man. that we can do. Okay, come on, give us a break here. I don't know why I get so much pushback whenever I say that. Having um, taken two and a half years of Greek, I can imagine. Let me begin. What I would do is at a minimum have two different English versions um, or whatever is your language of choice, uh, but have at least two different versions that come from two different translation perspectives. Uh, so, for example, um, the New International Version, the different New International Versions are geared towards an audience that doesn't know much English, is, is geared to try and be something that communicates more at a broader level, meaning for meaning. I think my battery is going out on my mic, and I'm sorry if, if, if it cuts out sometimes, especially for people um, walking online. New Revised Standard Version tends to be a little bit more word for word, which is not good, by the way, but it is good for comparison. If you want something really weird to read, American Standard Version of 1901. Uh, the American Standard Version is a horrible translation. Okay? because it's virtually word for word. And Greek and English don't have the same constructs. You want me to give me my batteries? No. I wish I had thought of that. <laughs> I went to school to figure that stuff out. Would you like for me to take that off? No, you're good. Apparently I'm good. So, where was I? Uh, <laughs> Okay, there we go. The mic's working. Uh, what was, where was I? Somebody knew. Okay, American Standard. Yeah. You really don't want a word-for-word -word translation. I mean, word-for-word -word translations are horrible. Okay, let's see. Yes. Well, let me just give you an example. So we're just going to, I told you I like Jude. So we're going to use the first verse of Jude. You've got to remember where it is. Here it is. If you haven't looked at this, this is his Greek Bible. So if I translate it word for word, here is the message from the Lord. Jude, of Jesus Christ's servant, brother and of James, to those in God the Father beloved and Jesus Christ kept called. Amen. 
Now, Greek is what we call an inflected language, which means its meaning is based on prefixes and suffixes of words, not on word order. We do word order. Now, if I pay attention to prefixes and suffixes, I would come up with something like this. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, and the brother of James, to those who are called, loved by God the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ. Little more meaning there. Okay? You do not want a word-for-word translation, unless you're using it as something to compare. Okay. But having multiple English versions, and, and we in the English-speaking world have a luxury of English versions, right? Since 2000, you've got a wide variety of choices, right? But look for things that were taking different approaches. And where there's a major difference, I can guarantee you it's due to one of two problems. Either they're using different manuscripts, or the Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic is ambiguous, can be translated different ways, and they've chosen a different way to translate it. Either way, that's something that's worth doing some homework about. So I, I would strongly urge you to always study with at least two English versions. Yeah, and... I appreciate you supporting me since I've said that before, right, everybody? <laughs> um, you made a comment about um, uh, the books of the Bible being decided by the beginning of the second century. Could you expand on that? No. Okay. <laughs> that wasn't a yes, no question. <laughs> Let me rephrase. Um. So, what I, what I was trying to explain, part of the problem is whatever happens, happens in a period of Christian history where we don't have a lot of documentation. What we have is hints in texts of the first century, like 2 Peter using Jude and 2 Peter calling Paul's letter scripture. Uh, and what we have in the early second century are clearly defined products. We've got four Gospels, we've got uh, epistles of Paul, we've got four to seven Catholic epistles, uh, Revelation sort of floating in and out. Um, but, and, and we've got this, this strange scribal habit of using books and marking sacred names and drawing stick figures of Jesus and uh, all of this by the second century. So uh, whatever has happened has happened between the last part of the first century and the early, early, early part of the second century. Um, Marcion's attacks on the Bible only make sense if there's already a Bible to attack in 140. Um, Papias is already... Papias writes around 130, and he's already explaining uh, why we've got four Gospels and, and, and how they've come about. Now, his, his explanations aren't that great, but, uh, but the fact that he feels it necessary to say, we, we've got these, <laughs> and only these, is pretty remarkable in 130. So, um, you know, we don't have uh, any indication that there were church councils uh, that, that early on. And we don't have any indication that there's any centralized Christian authority. And yet, boom, all of this is standard across Christianity early in the second century. It's really remarkable. How to explain it? Don't know the details. So we believe there was a full list or almost a full list of 27 books. By almost a full list, yeah. 110, 120, something mm -hmm. like that. Wow, that's amazing. Um, okay. I hate to do this. But <laughs> we, we got it. We got a second. We can still do this. Mark, you asked me a question about the fourth, fifth century. Has he answered that question? The question, uh, Kurt, is when you're talking to folks out in the Bible and they throw out, we didn't even have a Bible until the fourth or fifth century. What are they referencing? Yeah, I get me. Again, that's sort of the traditional thing that has been spouted for a very long time because, to be truthful, that's the evidence we had. Well, our, 
I shouldn't say that. We've had all this other evidence for quite some time, but nobody really put it all together. There was just this assumption that the church, through a process, developed this text, sort of thinking that maybe it developed like the Old Testament did. Right? So people, people are looking at the same data, they're interpreting that data, and you've got these church councils that are saying these things. You've got a guy named Athanasius writing in the year 367, who's the first person to sort of list the 27 books that we like uh, out of the New Testament. Uh, but, but the fact is, right, number one, people in the New Testament are already talking about the Bible. All scriptures God breathed. So Paul had a Bible. Right now, it's just the Old Testament, but uh, Paul had a Bible, and and to dismiss that, which is what that argument does, is um, problematic. Right? Uh, but also, all of our evidence from these manuscripts uh, that indicate that these books are treated differently from those books, even though those are Christian books, these books are treated differently. Um, uh, you know, we're, we're in San Antonio. So we, we, we can tell the difference between what we consider to be canonical inspired literature and Max Lucado's books, right? Max Lucado's books are good spiritual uplifting literature, but we don't view them, I hope you don't view them as scripture, okay? Christians are already making that distinction in the second century. They, they say these books are our scriptures. And they're treating Matthew and Romans and James just like they're treating Deuteronomy and Psalms and Isaiah. Same copying, same unique signatures in the way that they do their uh, books. I mean, it, it, it's clear that the church has not just the Old Testament as Bible by the beginning of the second century, but they've got what we consider the Bible, or at least most of it, already there. And uh, it, it's not some sort of evolutionary development. Although that, that's, that's been the standard argument for a very long time. 